Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide-ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL, doing business and doing life. Welcome to the Do Business, Do Life podcast. This is Kristen Shea. And do you think that if NASA were to send a rocket to the moon full of astronauts, right? And upon landing on the moon, they were to find out that all of their astronauts were dead. Do you think that they would celebrate (laughs) this huge feat of landing on the moon if they killed everybody? No. Or at least, right, you would like to think that they wouldn't. It feels like it would be a huge tragedy and there'd be protests everywhere looking to shut NASA down because congrats on getting to the moon, but everybody died, right? So was it really a success? And when Bob posed this question in today's conversation with Brad about basically today's culture around sustainable company growth based on internal company culture, I'm going to be honest, my jaw dropped. I texted Brad in the middle of the interview. I was like, yo, what a mic drop because Bob's right. That's exactly where startup and growth culture is right now. And people are tired of it. People don't want to be burned out, have their personal lives, health relationships at risk for the sake of, you know, big company goals. And advisors, if you are a leader on your team, if you are a CEO at your company, this is something that we have to pay attention to. Now, for those of you that don't already know him, Robert Glazer, we're going to call him Bob Glazer. Uh, He is an entrepreneur, author, and the founder of Acceleration Partners, which is a global marketing agency that has actually won more than 30 awards for company cultures, despite the fact that his 270-person team is fully remote. And in this episode, we're going to dive into Bob's latest book, Elevate Your Team. It's the sequel to his New York Times bestseller, Elevate. And it's basically his playbook for helping your business thrive and continue to grow, right, while improving your team's personal and professional lives. So very DBDL, if uh, we do say so ourselves. And in this episode, a couple of big takeaways. One, the four elements of what Bob calls capacity building, okay, and how leaders can use them to create a more open, motivated, connected company culture. Two tips for avoiding burnout for yourself and your team members while maintaining stable business growth. And in this conversation, there's a couple really interesting anecdotes about Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter and along those lines, right? More productive alternatives, hopefully, to firing employees. Okay, so before we get to the show, we brought up a box of Bob's book, Elevate Your Team. I actually have a copy right in front of me, and we're going to be shipping these bad boys out until they're all gone. If you want to grab your free copy, what you're going to do is text the number 10, not the word, to 785-800-3235. That's the DBDL Insider phone number. It's inside the show notes as well. It's going to automate this process of getting your book okay, via text message. There's going to be a link in the text that drops you directly onto the Apple podcast page where we're going to ask you to leave an honest, okay, honest rating and review of the show. We're then going to ask you to take a screenshot of that review and then text it back to us. We'll get your details. We'll ship you a copy of the book in the mail. Super simple. Quick disclosure, okay, on the text messages. Text messages and data rates may apply. You can opt out of receiving text messages at any time by replying stop to any message you receive. Quick apology to our international listeners outside the US. Shipping prices are insane. They're crazy high. We can only ship these out domestically. So please support Bob uh, and just go get a copy at your local bookstore or on Amazon. I know that you can find those there. One last housekeeping thing in regards to reviews. Thank you guys so much for your reviews. A couple of weeks ago, I went rogue and asked if you guys wouldn't mind helping me surprise and support Brad by getting us a hundred reviews by the end of April. And it really, really means the world to Brad that we were able to do that. Mostly because if, if you guys are leaving positive reviews, it, it means that we're adding value and 
everything about the show, Brad is approaching with a student's mindset and a servant's heart. So thank you guys. And if you have any feedback about how we can continue to improve, add more value based off of topics covered or guests, please let us know. With that said, if you want the show notes, okay, to today's episode, including links to all the resources, books mentioned, people discussed, you can visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 10. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. Episode 10. Uh, without further delay, today's conversation uh, between Brad and Bob Glazer. Welcome to another episode of Do Business, Do Life. We have Bob Glazer here today. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess it's sort of back, uh, maybe again. <laughs> yeah, dude, you're becoming a regular on this show. I was thinking back, I think the last time we crossed paths in person, it was on a bus at Mastermind Talks on the way to a Savannah Bananas game. I remember uh, that, having a really that, good that, chat with you. That does not happen every day. So yes, I remember that. That was very, very specific. But before we um, dive into your new book, and we're going to do a, a lot of conversation around that today, the Savannah Bananas and Jesse, those that have, have watched the ESPN special, the guy that runs the team and the organization, he's created quite the culture around, yeah. you know, really baseball inspired entertainment. What lessons did you take from just going and seeing that? I'm going to call it an experience, not an event live. Any lessons you took as a CEO from, from the game? I mean, it's going to blur my interview I did with Jesse after because I, I think I probably learned more from him than I did anyone else. I guess, I guess just how intentional everything was and how much they practiced it. As I described it to everyone, it was like going to a party and a baseball game broke out and also a thunderstorm <laughs> broke out that night. And it was still fun. <laughs> and it was still fun. Um, but, you know, even that night was long. And I know Jesse was pained by a long game because he he he's totally tried to, to change this with with banana ball. But, you know, if you saw it, it looks impulsive and crazy and entertainment when you actually talk and see how much preparation and practice and trial and error and sophistication that they goes on behind the scenes. Like, I think that just reminds me that, like, you shouldn't do anything that you haven't practiced. Sports like has some great analogies around leadership and coaching and practice and stuff that like in the business world and stuff, we do things like on stage for the first time, like ever. And, and in the theater and sports and stuff, you wouldn't do that. You practice five days a week for, you know, one hour game. That's a good analogy. Yes, it was, you went to a party and a baseball game broke out. So <laughs> it was baseball can be, I know I'm actually a big baseball fan, grew up playing baseball, but it can be a very slow sport. And it's like Jesse intentionally every second that you were at a baseball game, if you were to like, okay, this is dragon. Like he would insert some form of entertainment, you know, all throughout the whole experience. It was a really cool lesson in just how to create a, a whole different experience than what you would expect at the ballpark. So I yeah, echo again, the thing that he couldn't fix, you know, which was the time, you know, he is now fixed and, and, and just gone all in on, on banana ball. The other thing, you know, if it wasn't good for the customer, he doesn't do it. I just think that's a super helpful orientation that we can all mm. remember. You know, Bezos is famous for his chair in all the meetings, the empty chair that represents the customer. I mean, you know, we talk about intrusive advertising and all this stuff. Like, it's just not, it's not good for the fan. And so he doesn't do it. Although, yeah, although yeah. there's no way he's not going to do a deal with Chiquita Bananas at some point. Like, it's just too, <laughs> just too easy. Well, he he uses a lot of bananas as props during the whole game. Yeah, so he probably yeah, exactly. makes a wholesale deal at so, least with them. Exactly. Uh, well, and, and on that note, if it isn't good for the customer, he doesn't do it. I remember going and I think I bought a beer 
and like a hot dog there. And it was, it was priced very reasonably. And I was like, Oh, a baseball park that doesn't like jack the price of yeah, 10 X. Right. And it was just like, he had thought through the whole thing, which was, which was really cool. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think, look, you could either buy one $12 beer and feel totally taken advantage of, or buy three, $8 beers. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and feel like that was a value. And, it's an interesting orientation that I think a lot of people like, what can you do versus what, what, do, what, what makes people want to keep coming back and buying from you? Well, we better um, get to your new book uh, just came out. I think March 9th, March 7th, March yeah. 7th, elevate your team. Correct. Elevate your team. And we right. actually had a pre- right. previous conversation <laughs> around elevate, yeah. uh, which was, and as we were talking before we started recording here, Really elevate was almost looking internal personal development where elevate your team is looking external team-based development. So if you were to give us the Cliff's Notes version of, Hey, I love the first book, number one, wall street journal, bestseller. Here's the new book, same methodology, but now outward facing your team. How would you break the difference between the two down? Yeah. And, and, and there's a story that starts in the book, my genius idiot epiphany around trying to solve a problem at work and realizing I had spent two years kind of writing this book, Elevate, and coming up with this framework and that it could be the same solution. And a lot of people really liked that framework around getting better as an individual or a leader. But, you know, then I started thinking about, well, how do you, you know, and, and it's interesting, timing kind of matters around this stuff. I think we're ending the steroid phase of high growth you know, organizations that just kind of grew by breaking people and burning through them. My, my analogy is like, do you think NASA would ever send a rocket to the moon and celebrate if it got to the moon and all the astronauts were dead? That's sort of like what startup culture has become rather than like, hey, the team rose up and made it and, 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 and did it. And so when I started thinking about how do you build this company by building a team and what did we do and what did other people do? How, how do these become organizational and team cultural embedded principles, it, it, it was pretty interesting. And I, and I actually think it is the, the playbook for how you can, you can build that we can get back to growth. I think growth's kind of a bad word right now. I think everyone's tired. They're exhausted. They don't want the 10X growth. Elon Musk told everyone they're gonna have to work super hard and double down. They all quit the next day. Right. And he's, he's been pretty successful with this formula at a few other companies. So we're going to get back to growth. Like everyone's kind of playing defense right now. They're nervous with everything going on, but when we get back to growth. I think it's just going to have to look a little bit different. And I, I, I really believe that this is the playbook for how organizations and leaders can get back to growth in a way that's a little more sustainable. Yeah. What was Elon? I said, now that he's super Twitter, intense, I feel like, I think that yeah, I feel like, I feel like on Twitter now there's, there's always a little soundbite from Elon, but this was the just number one thing I back. noticed when he took over Twitter that like my Twitter feed, which I don't use that often was he always had the top spot on any post. Like, <laughs> I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe he could have bought some paid ads rather than spending $40 billion. It's just a small adjustment to the <laughs> algorithm. Once you take yeah. over the company, that's all it took. But, but on that note, I think one of his recent comments was, and I know obviously COVID, everybody's kind of coming out of this, you know, fully virtual to is it now a hybrid model yeah. and every company is trying to figure that out. But it was like, hey, basically back to the office or you're fired. But I think there was another comment he made that was interesting. It was his only reason for someone not being in the office was if the talent level was so high that it required them not to be like, just because that's the only way that he could get them into the organization. Now I'm going to throw that at you because you ran essentially a fully virtual company for a long time with an incredible culture. Like 
Glassdoor award-winning culture. So what's your take on that thought process? I am actually a real fan of people getting together. And I think there are certain things that should be done together or in person. I was just saying, lamenting to someone yesterday that when we had to do the virtual virtual offsites, we do quarterly management team offsites. That was like the worst thing ever. Like it was just horrible. <laughs> but look, the, the, the majority of these, I would say ultimatums have come from older males, <laughs> which I think is an interesting thing on with a lot of real estate. And it just feels like a power dynamic play rather than a business dynamic play. What you don't hear them say is like, we need people back in the office to do X. We need them back for these meetings. Like what I would say if I was the leader of a bank is, hey, like, if we're pitching against our competitor for a $10 million thing, like you need to be in the room. Like mm-hmm. Zoom's not going to cut it, right? But if you're crunching a model all day in your underwear, that you know the deal bef- the day before the deal closes, you probably don't have to come in that day. So, I think people are getting away from outcomes. They're getting away from context. They're they're kind of like falling prey to the sunk cost power play thing. And look, the reality is the data is probably going to show us that people that get together have more connection. That people do want to get together. Sometimes people don't know what's good for themselves. I think Steve Jobs was good at that. I firmly believe that if people never meet each other. It'll be easier to leave those teams and those organizations. Yeah. doesn't mean they want to sit in traffic for two hours a day, or it doesn't mean that they want to be told they have to do something versus like, hey, look, we're having a huge meeting today and we're deciding like who gets promoted and who's not. Like if you want to call in, like that's on you. I'd like to see more people talking about the the why or the context, not not the ultimatum. The ultimatums have really not gone very well. I think, again, a quarter of the company quit the next day. So take that for what it's yeah, worth. Most, most people would say that wasn't an ideal outcome. Yeah, um, and look, and, and on the banks have done this too. And there's like the third and fourth boutique banks are like, look, we care about performance and outcome. Like we don't, I mean, my my favorite thing is that the, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, you know, said that uh, Lloyd Blankfeld, I think, or the, maybe that was the old one, whoever it was, that he basically said, in January 2022, that work from home is an aberration that we are going to fix as soon as possible. Two weeks later, they had their best earnings in the history of the organization with everyone working from home. A year later, after he's forced everyone back into the office, uh, David Solomon was his name, uh, forced everyone back into the office, they had their worst earnings decline in 10 years. So I'm not making the argument that I'm actually making the argument that there was no causal relationship. Like (laughs) one was a good business environment. One was a tough business environment. It probably didn't matter where exactly how people were working, but I'm sure that his shareholders were much happier last year than they were this year. Yeah. It'll be an interesting study 10 years from now, the whole uh, COVID situation, just on working in person versus working remote. Cause I I see definitely both sides. So, well, let's let's go in. And some, there's some, the truth is always in between, right? So rarely in the extremes, (laughs) rarely in the extremes. Let's go into the book. So those that didn't catch our last interview, um, we've really got, uh, do you call them four principles? Yeah. The four, uh, the the four sort of elements of capacity building. So if you don't mind, let's just kind of review those at a high level. And I don't know if you've done this before, Bob, if you want to, I I could kind of see a cool dynamic. We just had Jocko, out at one of our uh, triad experiences and he's rolling out this new mirror. And when you were talking about book one, elevate yeah. the mirror at the bottom is going to say problem identified. And I was like, that's a perfect Jocko product. You know, you yeah. look at the mirror problem identified. So I feel like your first funny. book elevate was 
problem identified individual, like let's work on myself. Now this yeah. one's looking out. So could you do kind of a comp- comparison and contrast? Like here's how this works individually. Here's how it applies to team. If you're open to it, I don't know. Yeah. If that's so, so let me usually teach it. Yeah. So, so let me go through the four capacities. Um, so there's spiritual capacity, intellectual, physical, and emotional. So spiritual, let me tell you how I define them in, 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 in elevate uh, first. Cause I think that would be helpful. So Spiritual capacity is about understanding who you are, what you want most, and the standards you want to live by. Intellectual is about how you improve your ability to think, learn, plan, and execute with discipline. Physical is your health, well-being, and physical performance. And emotional is how you react to challenging situations, your emotional mindset, and the quality of your relationships. So, you know, I talked a lot in Elevate kind of how you would work across those things. In an organization and in, in the your team in the context of spiritual capacity, this is how do we help our teams identify their core values, their strengths, the things that they are innately good at? Because if we believe that they're going to develop into level four, level five leaders, as Jim Collins would say, they're only going to do that from a place of authenticity and sort of self-awareness. They're going to be like a leader who actually understands what's important to them. And these things run really deep, having done the core value stuff about why people value certain things. Like it just is who they are. You could have standards for your leaders across the organization, but they're not going to be kind of a carbon cutter person. So talking about how, how to do that and how to give people that awareness so that they can develop into the best version of a leader. Intellectual goes a lot into how does the organization build a culture of, of learning and feedback and learning goes super hand in hand. And how does it promote like best practices around discipline and time management and prioritization and things that are holistic that actually, particularly when you're working from home and you're the same person would make you a better spouse, partner, child, otherwise, as it would an employee, because look, your morning routine matters for your business performance. You know, if you get up late, smash off the alarm, you're exhausted, you know, you rush into a meeting, you're terrible at, you know, financial management, like not like you're going to get to work and all those things are going to be kind of clicking in all forms. So again, what are, what are these sort of, how do we make our personal operating systems better and, and, and do that holistically physical since everyone started working from home and remotely, we have lost a lot of the last remaining boundaries in work around being able to turn work off, have a life outside of work. So how do you, how do you create these boundaries? How do you reestablish them? I can get back to later, like some specific tactics and examples. I think we need to do that because how do we get people focused on outcomes and not hours? Um, there's a case study of Marissa Meyer in the book, Taking Over Yahoo, sort of an anti-case study of just coming in and bragging about 100, 130-hour work weeks, like everyone working to death and no tangible results from from any of that and a culture that was just spinning its wheels did 53 acquisitions that were all worthless after five years. And having done four in two years, I don't even know how you do 53. Like it's crazy. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> and then the last is emotional capacity. And again, the, the organizational version of this, I think for a lot of guys, how do you have psychological safety? How do we take the things we know about ourselves and make them available to others to understand people's different communication styles and elsewhere how do we get our teams focused on the things that really an orientation around what they control, not what they control, but sort of as a team, this is where it becomes cultural, right? If you're someone who focuses on the external locus of control, that's you, not internal. But we were talking about this before, like very common in sales teams. There are sales teams I've seen where the culture is like, we never lost a deal that was our fault. Like it was, we got screwed by the client. We got screwed by the competitor. We got screwed by this, like that, like 
that's a cultural thing that you allow to exist in your organization. So organizations that are psychologically safe, where people are feel free to challenge each other, where there's vulnerability, where they're sharing, where there's like, hey, we screwed this up. Like those are the ones that improve rapidly, but that's a that's a cultural thing that you need to develop within a team or within an organization. You uh, used an example uh, before we went live here that I just want to bring up around like the culture of a, of a sales team. Uh, and maybe this was, you said, I think the exact quote was the boss sold the dream to team service, the nightmare. And they kind of, what was sold was not actually what was provided or even existed. Um, yeah. So let's talk about like, if you were dropped in as a CEO into a team that had a culture like that, are there some principles out of the book that could start to steer the ship in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the things on there, like asking for feedback, you know, following up without like, Hey, why do we, do, do, how many organizations call the person and say, Hey, I'd love to get on a call and understand why we lost the deal. And they just listen, right? No arguing. Mm -hmm. Someone once asked me to take one of those calls and I told them why they lost the deal. And then they argued with me about all. I was like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> you called me. It's already done. Like if you want the feedback, it's, it's like, like, ask <laughs> for feedback and then I will argue with the feedback you give me call. Yeah. Like it was ridiculous. Fun. Like and they yeah. sent me like a fruit basket and I was like, come on. So yeah, I, I, I think it's, Look, people follow the behavior of the leader. I tell a story in the book about we're a services firm. We partner with a bunch of different tech firms. We're agnostic. We have no economics in it. One of those tech firms really had built up its agency business. It was like really paying attention to pricing and the model. And they were coming and meeting with us and we were doing sales together and we were doing a lot of business with them. And the other platform didn't like this. And they'd say, what can we do to do more business together? We're like, look, you can have an agency strategy. You could self stop selling against us in some cases <laughs> and, and, and try to like, you're just, there's a lot of market confusion with these folks. Like they're not offering, they, this other firm offered services and tech and the other partner just offered tech. Um, and so we gave them the feedback over and over. And, and eventually we were at a conference in London and someone came up to someone on our team and said, I know for a fact that you accept kickbacks from that other firm. And I was like, oh, and they got back to me. I was like, well, that's really interesting because we've been super adamant about, uh, and I'm pretty sure I would know about these kickbacks, like someone <laughs> who sees all this stuff. And it just like, it, it actually like someone at the firm, rather than taking the feedback and augmenting what they were doing, decided that they would come up with an external locus of control narrative to why this wasn't their fault. And I was like, look, I'll give you a million dollars if you can tell us, you know, point to these, where these at kickback. You know, I talked to the leaders at the firm. I'm like, look, your people created this narrative and they're sharing it amongst each other. And it's a total lie. So if I was at that firm, I would call everyone in a room and I would be like, we are not doing this. And if I hear this again, you're fired. Like, you know, that, that, that to me would be a really strong, like, this is not how we do business uh, at all. But it's just so interesting to me how that perpetuated. It was, I mean, it was an outright lie. I was like, you, I, and I yeah. talked to someone at the firm. I was like, you can say you don't like us. You, you can say a lot of things that are that are uh, uh, you know subjective or objective, but this is an outright lie. Like someone just made it up. Yeah, I, I've seen that happen. It's almost like this cultural creep, like not a great cultural creep, but a, a negative cultural creep that can happen yeah. in these organizations as they get big. And then it's like if you let these narratives perpetuate, if you per, yeah, if you permit them, then it's like oh, that's what you do, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's it's like the. Um, 
And we've all probably been in these sort of corporations before where you've got these core principles on a wall and they're like really dusty. And you can tell they've been there since the 80s, probably. Like the Enron ones of integrity, trust, respect, and whatever it was. It was great, great, which is not how you got promoted at Enron. Their real core values were stab the other guy in the back, take excessive risk, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like to me and, and Triad, we're just over two years into this, but that will be when I know things, number one, it won't happen while I'm here. But if that were to ever happen where core values become just BS or a mission statement becomes BS, it's like, that's what you're talking about there. Because obviously if narratives are happening that are straight lies and nobody's doing anything to fix them, it's like either number one, you don't have a culture you care about or you're not actually right or no one or no one challenged that. And and again, I, yeah. it's really common again, I'm not, not picking on sales, but just anything to think about like as a leader and Jocko would totally align to this and agree to this. Don't look externally. Like it's your fault. It's your problem. What did you do wrong? Like, you know, we had another thing where similar thing where one of these tech clients, like we, we pitch with one, we pitch with another and one of them won it. And the other sales team calls furious that they blew the deal. And their rep was at the end of the quarter and he overpriced the deal. And, and we had introduced them to the client and put the table and they lost it. And he's calling us mm-hmm. looking for this. I'm like, I was like, dude, like <laughs> we introduced you. When you put you at the table, you lost the deal. You're trash talking the other person, the client, like what would like, don't blame us. Like I, if someone introduced me to, if you introduced me to a client and, and I went and I lost the deal, Brad, like, and then I called you to complain about it. Like, that's such a right or like, that's a terrible oriented, like Brad, like they didn't, my pricing was wrong. Why didn't you warn me? Like, I, it, that's a crazy orientation to take that. Like, it's the other person's fault when they put you in the position. So in this case, you know, they they, they thought they got screwed and the other company set them up and the rep was behind quota and totally overpriced it, trying to make his number. And that was the, that was the story that no one wanted to admit to. Why is that so hard? Let's just go like down a philosophical conversation. Like cognitive dissonance, way, my favorite topic ever. I mean, it's just really hard to admit that. Why we, is it so hard to say it's me and not pointing the fingers outward? Because the whole premise of cognitive dissonance, we can't hold these two separate things in the word that I'm good at my job or whatever. And I made a mistake or I am a good person and I made a mistake. There's an incredible stat in one of my favorite books. If mistakes were made, but not by me, that when DNA evidence came out that irrefutably showed that the wrong people were put in prison. The prosecutors came out of retirement to like retry them, you know, and put them back Mm -hmm. in prison when the data was saying they weren't even there. And the reason was they're like, I'm a good person. I did my job. Well, I I couldn't have put an innocent person in jail. Therefore they must be guilty. Um, So cognitive dissonance is a super powerful force and it, and it, it causes us to repeat mistakes because we can't, handle these two things, which is like, I'm a good person, but I screwed it up. Right. Therefore I had to have not screwed it up because I do everything right. How do you work on that in an organization and a team? Cause I think it's easier to see that when other people do yeah. it versus yourself. But as a leader, that's part of your job is to obviously pour into people, give them honest feedback, help them grow yeah. as a professional. Yeah. I think this is what are your thoughts my next there? Friday forwards. You'll like this. So do you want to know why I think you know what I think the most risk to GPT taking over people's chat GPT taking over people's jobs is? And this was my epiphany this morning while I was using it. I'd love to hear it. It takes any feedback and gets better. <laughs> like what people don't realize, they're like, oh, I put something in and the answer's not good. And then if they actually tried following up and saying, 
actually, this is wrong, or you use the wrong source, or can you make it better, or you can be more empathetic? And it just comes back to you with a different version until it's right. So someone was showing me a poor outcome it got from GPT this morning, and then they gave it a ton of feedback, and it got like the perfect outcome. And I was like, ah, interesting. You're getting, you're, you're delivering feedback, with, and you're not getting any emotion or baggage, and you're no just getting a better product. Yeah. Like that is, a, that is actually a, a bug that we humans have <laughs> that the machine does not have. That is a solid take. Because, because as an algorithm, it has zero resistance to feedback. It just takes it openly and iterates. It just takes it and iterates. And it says, sorry. And it's programmed to say, sorry, and try again. And we get so Mm -hmm. defensive and we get into all these things and we bring a lot more baggage. Now, there's a whole chapter on feedback. A, A lot of people don't know how to give it. They don't know how to receive it. This is part of training the team on, again, how to do both well. A lot of times we don't give depersonalized feedback. You know, we, 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 we talk about the person and not the, not the action or what they did. So let's go there. One of the biggest struggles for financial advisors, of which is most of this audience, is they're great salespeople, and that's what leads them to a certain level of success. But then it's that transition to business owner and leading a team, which takes how to deliver constructive feedback in a way that doesn't run people off, create high levels of turnover. So if you were to coach a financial advisor, that's a great salesperson, maybe just becoming a business owner yeah. on delivering feedback the proper way, what would that be? So, so two cardinal rules. And I talk about in a book and there are a lot more examples. One is criticize, well, not criticize, maybe whatever the word talk about behaviors, not character, not like, so, so we've all dealt with someone who's not strategic at some point in our thing, right? Brad, if I tell you, you you know, you were just not strategic, that is an insult on your character. It seems like a fixed trait that, how do I fix that? I'm just not strategic versus Brad on that call. You had a lot of tactics. What was really missing was strategy. And that's what the client was upset about. And here are the three strategic points that you could have brought up that I think would have made them, you know, more, more, and you, and you do it fast. And so again, you make it about the actual action and why it's, what, why what happened was bad for the person, not just that it annoys you, right? A lot of times yep. it seems like it's something that annoys us. So there's a framework, SBO, situation, behavior, outcome. What was the situation on that call yesterday? The behavior was that they asked for strategy and we gave them a lot of tactics. The outcome is they don't seem super happy and we're likely to lose them as a client, probably to someone who's going to provide that strategy for them. So this is the bad for you approach that I talked about at Friday Ford. And so, Brad, you would understand why losing a client is probably not a good thing for you, right? Not that it's just right. something that annoys me. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So situation, behavior, outcome. I love that framework. And then the other thing I heard is it's the action, not the person. It reminds me, I think it was Microsoft has a phrase that says, you are not your idea. So it's almost like yeah. extract the idea, put it on the table, bat the idea around. That way you don't have to resist it. Hey, not, you know, not being I, a good, you're a good idea. Adam, Adam Grant talks about relationship conflict, that good teams have task conflict, not relationship contract. Like they are arguing and fighting about ideas and whatever, but not Brad, you're an idiot. You know, Kristen, mm-hmm. you're smart. You actually should never tell someone, this is a good rule as a parent. You should never tell someone that they are or aren't something, right? There's a, set of damages by telling a kid that they aren't smart. And there's a set of damages by telling a kid that they are smart, which gives them permission to do dumb things. Right. I've definitely Mm -hmm. told my kids things that they have done are very smart or not smart, but that's very different. And I heard a child development specialist say the years ago, never tell someone they are or aren't something. 
You know, uh, that was a book. There's a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck. Are you familiar? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's that. That's like a big point out of there. Like I remember as a, when my kids were young and you've got your little five-year-old that's, you know, running the yard, you're so fast. Creating that label now creates this fixed mindset where if they ever run a race and they get beat, now they've been proven they're not fast right. versus the growth mindset of go against fast kids and you'll get faster. Right. I'm and not, so I'm just, not just smart. Like, this kid in my label. class is yeah. so smart. Well, they studied eight hours for the test. You studied one, right? I mean, I, you know, <laughs> that's the trade-off. Yeah. Her argument in that book that I thought was really, I mean, changed how I parent my children. It's if they're acing every test in, in math class, oh, looks like you need to get harder problems. You know, not like you're so smart, you've conquered math because now the next math right. test they take that they don't conquer. Now there's a, yeah. a so fear I, of going there are and people doing on hard our, stuff. Our, yeah, there are people on our team I have talked to. They are they are emotionally scarred five to 10 years later by being told they weren't, were, weren't something, you know, mm-hmm. or they would never be something or otherwise. Like the damage it does is pretty telling. Mm-hmm. You, we won't get, we'll get off this topic, but you literally just remind, so you just had a flashback to someone who said something. Well, no, no, episode, <laughs> episode three was Michael Hyatt of this show. And he shared a story. He was on a plane with a friend and he was telling a story about his personal finances as an adult. And his friend made the side comment of you're just not very good with money. Are you? And it literally scarred him as a super successful CEO that yeah. just needed to level up his personal finances, you know, a few decades ago. And yeah, it's like that can scar anyone regardless of how successful or, or how well they do in different domains. So that's a solid lesson here. Okay. We'll get back on track, but I love that aside. Okay. So let's go back to spiritual, intellectual, physical, emotional. seems like we kind of jumped to number four quite a bit here on the emotional side of it. If we were to loop back on spiritual, intellectual, physical, like maybe just some high level, if I'm running a team or trying to build a team in my business, it would be like, we should talk about at least these two, three things. What would come to mind for you? Yeah, uh, let's see. I, let's talk about physical because I think okay. this is, we're dealing with a kind of epic thing of burnout right now after two to three years of a pandemic, which I said, if, I think most people now, the CEO of their company came to them in 2023 and they're like, we're going to grow 500% next year. You know, they'd be like, oh, like, you know, <laughs> they're like, I don't want to do that, right? Versus in 2019, mm-hmm. people are like, let's go. Like, so- mm-hmm. This is where, look, people need boundaries. They need time away from work. They need, in order to come to work, energize and engage, they need things actually outside of work and they need their mental and physical health. And the, and the organization could either provide the space to do that, or it could be the, the, the problem that resists against that. And, and as leaders, we set the tone, right? So if I'm the CEO of an organization, you know, Brad, and you're on my team and I'm going on vacation next week. And I set my little out of office and it says, hey, everyone, I'm out on vacation with my family this week. But if you need me, you can text me, email me, write me. I'll check my email three times a day and you know, so on and so forth. What's the very clear message that that sends? Essentially, you're not on vacation. <laughs> yeah. And, what, what's, and, and how do you think employees will emulate that? You know, that a vacation right. is not a vacation. Now, the alternative to that would be, and this is a real thing that I saw someone write from a company, they said... I am uh, out of vacation with my family this week. This time's like super sacrosanct. And so I'll be offline and whatever. And if it's an emergency and you need me, you can text my wife's number and here it is. And she'll get in touch with me. Or you can email me at interruptmyvacation at company.com. I hope you have a great week. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So 
that sends a totally different message to the organization that it is okay and expected to have a vacation and, and have some time off. Again, people need boundaries in their day. They need to not get emails all hours of the day. I'm not on board with the French go to jail for sending an email after 5 p.m., particularly if you're trying to have a startup. But actually, as someone who led the organization for years and the realization that I liked to respond to a bunch of things on Saturday morning when my kids were asleep, but then other people think they need to respond to my responses. Yep. I started five years ago using delay delivery. So anything that I send to someone who's not on my executive team and not urgent, that's kind of out of hours is set to go to them at eight or 9 a.m. the next business day. And I think people really appreciate that. And if it's over a weekend, I can be sound asleep at eight o'clock on a Monday morning. And I look like I'm super productive and getting a lot of stuff done as a, like, I actually believe this one. Like, I think that if I ever hear that people are running a marathon or training for something, it's like, go do that. That's awesome. You will be in better mental and physical, <laughs> you know, you, you need to do it during the day. Great. As long as it doesn't interfere with the meeting or work, because they need stuff that energizes them and in different parts of their life. And people need all the data has proven that since people have gone home, they are working more and you have a Pavlovian situation. If there's always an email from your boss at 11 p.m. at night, then you're checking that before you go to bed. Then it's in your head. Then you're not sleeping. And we're encouraging unhealthy behavior. You know, Marissa Meyer bragged about 100, 130 hour work weeks, which means 130 hour work week means only six hours a day over a seven day week. You can't make the Mac work over five. Only six hours a day outside of work over a seven-day work week. The the World Health Organization says that if you regularly, and I think she was one of these rare people that needed less sleep, but most people, if you get less than five hours of sleep on average a night, you are like as cognitively impaired as someone that is drunk. So like mm -hmm. if someone came to work drunk, you would throw them like uh, <laughs> you, you would throw you would fire them or make them go home. You know, there are deals and times when people are closing or, you know, have slept at the office and, and, and coming in where you where you're actually encouraging that behavior, which is crazy to me. Well, you're preaching to the choir here. This podcast is called Do Business, Do Life. Our mission at Triad is do business, do life. And I would say um, the, the whole 130 hour work week, it's a real epidemic inside of finance. It's it's the it's a very sales driven business model. To where a lot of these advisors will literally grind 20 appointments a week, multiple live presentations a week, and they're on this hamster wheel of production, 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 all for, you know, walk across the stage, get recognized, top producer. But except and, it doesn't, um, it doesn't, it doesn't align with the 80-20 rule, right? Like it just doesn't. That's the problem. Well, like back to the physical side of it, I've seen over, well, I guess I'm 15 years in this space now. I've seen people almost like collapse from exhaustion after they, they chase this imaginary carrot. You will hit a wall. You, I, yeah. you can do that. Look, I've done it. You can do it for days. You can do it for weeks. The, you will hit a wall. And then the problem is, will you get up, <laughs> right? Depending on maybe how long, how long you've been running that, how big the collapse is. If the collapse is a heart attack or a stroke, you, you might not. So let's go there. Let's go to a season where you were redlining out. Yeah. And what, what did it take for you to change the trajectory to get off of that? I've had a couple of those. Um, I think it, look, there was COVID, which we all had to kind of just stick it into overdrive. But I, in Elevate, I told the story about thinking I was having a heart attack and I had a pan attack because I was in the middle of 
starting two businesses, building a house and having a child and living with my parents as the great recession was sort of kicking the housing market was completely imploding. Uh, and yeah, I was, I was having two cups of coffee in the morning, glass of wine at night, like nonstop. And I, I, you know, literally had a full on panic attack and got taken to the hospital in the ambulance. And so I still have on my desk, if I look up right now, I still have the medical bracelet, you know, up there as a reminder where I feel like I got to mm-hmm. get out of jail free card. Like I got to like, Hey, this is your, this is the, this is, uh, Christmas, whatever, you know, coming back and giving you the warning, a a wonderful (laughs) life. Yeah. Wonderful life. Right. Before, before it happens. Um, so yeah, I mean, I started running after that. I mean, I made a lot of kind of just, you know, lifestyle changes and I just realized, and, and, and look, as, as we get older too, the problem is you start to realize as you get older, like relying that as a default mechanism just doesn't just doesn't work as well. Your body doesn't handle it the same way it does in its thirties and forties as it does in its twenties. Yeah. I was asked this question not long ago by a friend, you know, I, I worked inside of a corporation as an employee for most of my career in finance. And then August of 2020 stepped away. Uh, and then obviously started up triad and I coached entrepreneurs for over a decade. So you'd think if anything, I, I, I would have been the guy that would have known the stress and the roller coaster. But I will say that one of the biggest lessons the last two and a half years has been a lot easier to coach entrepreneurs than it is to be one. And that roller coaster that you're talking about, um, you know, I, I never had any issues sleeping and waking up three in the morning with 15 things on your mind, you know, right. heart beating like sweat. crazy. Yeah, it's 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 well, real. that's why the and depression rates are 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 so high. I mean, it looks I always say entrepreneurship looks sexy in the rearview mirror. So how do you so I heard I heard a few things. I heard um change some lifestyle habits, kind of maybe stop self-medicating, whether it's caffeine or alcohol, maybe to to that that sort of level where it was yeah. just constant nonstop. Anything else like if Let's just say you're talking to an advisor that's literally at burnout right now. What other advice would you give? Them? Yeah, I, I, I look, I'm a big fan of the 80-20 rule. I don't think we escape it. If you think, go into your closet, go look right now. It's probably you wear 90% of your clothes, 10%. I mean, 10% of your clothes, 90% of the time. So mm-hmm. I think we're judging our success a lot on the amount of activity going on. And if you start actually looking at your schedule, doing some deep dives, looking at everything you're doing and find where's the 20% that's getting the 80% of the outcome and like, and pull back to that. Like I fall entrepreneurs and particularly with their ADD, they fall prey to this all the time, new opportunity, new opportunity, new opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, like social media for, for most companies they try to do every channel. Most people are lucky to get one. They get, they either figured out LinkedIn and they do it well or TikTok and they do it well or something they do it well, but trying to do all of them actually has the worst result possible. So when people can stop kind of and take a deep look at where do they just have a lot of noise and action going on versus what is working and try to think down on how to double down more. Again, I need to have a hundred meetings a week, right? Let's just say, okay, let's do, let's double click on these meetings. Like, which ones produced results? Which ones were good? What attributes did they have in common? Okay, now I actually start having a model of like the meetings I want to take. This is to me the working smarter, not working harder. Like I build a filter of what's a meeting that's 80% likely to convert. I'll take those. The meetings that are 5% likely to convert, I won't take those, you know, and, 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 and I'm not trying to fill every hour of the day. 
I also think you need to time block your schedule, which means you put in the things that are most important. So if you've got a family thing or you want to go to the gym or otherwise, like that's got to go in first because then mm-hmm. everything else will fill around it. If you think you're just going to find time to work out or find time for family and you book hundred percent of your calendar, that's never going to happen. Yeah. I love that principle. We call that a, at the Johnson house, putting the big rocks on the calendar first. Yeah. And then, you know, the pebbles filter down around it. It's kind of that old, I think it was like a biblical analogy of is the pitcher full and you put the big rocks in and you put the sand and you put the water. And I feel like a lot of people's calendars, it's just, it's uh subject to the whirlwind of the day, whatever that happens to be. So did you, did you have an EA in your, when you were running CEO? Um, or how did you manage the calendar? What was your trick there? Uh, yeah, I had an EA. And again, there is, uh, I, I, I think I don't ever use Calendly or any of those things, which would say you can kind of grab all of you know, my time whenever you want it. So mm-hmm. I, I, it's my job to sort of fill the rocks and the buckets. Like here's the buckets mm-hmm. for meeting. Here's the buckets for this. And then the EA helps with understanding that. But I also had a rule you know, with all my EAs are like, look, there's a total capacity to a day. I don't want to be booked hundred percent. So if you start seeing that I have, you know, all these meetings that day, like I, I need, like the free space has to be protected. Some of that free space is delivering things and doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's like when you get done a, a full day at the office and you have more things on your to-do list than actually getting stuff executed. It's probably a, a good clue that you need to maybe carve some of that down a bit. So well, I definitely want to get to, let's jump there now, unless there's any closing thoughts on, on the book stuff. Cause I want to get to, you were one of the, when you were active CEO, you were one of the top rated CEOs on Glassdoor. And I just checked the reviews today on Glassdoor. They're still stellar. And yeah. so I want to get into some of that. And you have some really cool principles that drove that culture and kind of even how you transition people out. But before we jump there, anything else on the book that we want to hit? before we, we move on. No, I mean, the book is a lot of those cultural principles and sort of how, how they embedded them in the organization. Okay. Well, let, let's go. So I'm looking at acceleration partners, your glass door rating. What's really cool. I mean, you're in Boston, you're in London, you're in Singapore, Chicago, someplace I can't even pronounce in Mexico. <laughs> and these are, these are stellar ratings across the board in multiple countries. And then, um, I don't want to mess this up, Bob. So what, you were rated at what size of company as far as top I think CEOs it was, on Glassdoor? I think it was number two when we were in small, medium, small. I think, I don't know whether they just have two sizes. I think we're medium. Mm-hmm. So small, medium, like top five CEO, like in the world based on who Glassdoor has on their website. And the thing with Glassdoor, you know, don't throw rocks if you live in a glass house. Glassdoor is a glass house because it's like, oh. I've looked up their public. reviews at some point. Like I've. Yeah, it's very funny. I've actually looked up their reviews at one point. I was curious to see how they filtered. Those. Oh, like how is Glassdoor yeah, yeah. on Glassdoor? How'd yeah. they do? Were they okay? Yeah, they're okay. Not 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 that great. Look, and I, I everyone has a love hate relationship with Glassdoor. I actually think it's kept a lot of people honest. I think they know if mm-hmm. they do something pretty shitty or otherwise, like you'll expect to see it on there. And maybe if that's that's sort of the accountability of better behavior. I also don't love, I think there's a lot of fraud, you know, I think competitors do stuff. We've seen, you know, a lot of stuff. Actually, it becomes very hard to stay on top of some of these things because I think as soon as people see you up top, you get a lot of (laughs) like 
people really trying to like bring you down, which is interesting. I've heard yeah. from a lot of a lot of companies. But yeah, I think it's a I think it's a good mechanism and and I appreciate the anonymous side. I just I, I am also not sure how I, I I've seen experiments of people putting kind of hit jobs on there and it it's up to the company just to respond. It's not up to the glass door to prove it was a legitimate review. And we've we've definitely had some of those from stuff that just is out of left field from countries we're not in, from job titles we didn't have, from which, you know, I yeah. think was the wrong organization. And they're like, yeah, you can respond. <laughs> like, you know, we're not going to look into it. So you got to take the good and the well, bad with those things. Well, there's a, uh, on that note, like, it's funny. So just relaunched a podcast and my prior show was fortunate, had some, some great ratings over the years that we did that. And I think it was three, four years until I got my first one star rating. And literally first one star rating pops in within like three days of the new show going live. I'm like, great. We're, we're, we're on somebody's radar. So this is yeah. fun. So I think, I think that's one of those things. It's almost like a stoic principle in business. If, if you're not doing big things, you're not going to have haters. So if you are doing big things, just welcome the haters. It's going to happen. Whether it's a hit job on Glassdoor, or whether it's, you know, a bad review of your latest book. Um, is there anything from a mindset standpoint that you personally utilize when you've got haters coming at you in, in different domains? I, again, I, I don't actually mind truth and opinion. I think I, I get frustrated in these venues. Again, there have been some reviews that people had a really bad experience and they they are clearly demonstrable of inside baseball and what was going on in the organization. And we will write back. like, I'm really sorry you had this experience and if we can do anything, reach out or otherwise. And actually it's provoked some discussions, but there are other ones where there's, I could have, it doesn't have any context. Right. And so it's like, then to me, I'm like, I don't know if this is real. Like, I, I don't mind anything that I, I think I've learned a lot of things of someone's what's the real perspective of their experience. It's, it's, it's just when it's not, when you might not be real or someone has a, a motivation, then, you know, I think that's more, that's more frustrating or, or the context just doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. Well, let's go to one, one of the things you did a, a panel discussion at mastermind talks uh, for those unfamiliar, Jason Gaynard runs a really cool community. In fact, I think that's where I met you the first time, Bob, but he runs a really cool community and he did a breakout on just culture employee culture, how to do it intentionally. And he pulled a number of members out of the community that he believed, you know, really ran businesses that exemplified that you were one of the guys on the panel. And I'm looking at my notes right now and you had a really cool approach to not firing or it was, you called it mindful transitions when you needed to transition somebody out of your business. So I'm going to guess that's one of the reasons you guys continue to stay very highly rated on Glassdoor. So would you mind just sharing a few ideas around that concept? Yeah, I mean, and look, we're not perfect on this. We've tried it over the year. I think we've since renamed it the Career Engagement Program. But even in the number one company on Glassdoor, if you'll go look in large company, the average tenure will be like 1.8 years. So whether it's Google or otherwise, or probably not this year. <laughs> but I think we're all pretending that people are going to work at somewhere for life. And there are reasons why the company needs to do something different. And there are reasons why the person wants to do something different. And, you know, there's a lot of psychology and history tied up into this. And I think rather than ignoring that, if we could actually foster those discussions, I think we can get to better outcomes. Like, you know, rather than someone giving two weeks notice or two days notice after they've always quit a new job, start a discussion around, Hey, this might not be the right thing for me. And I want to do something else. And we're a client service business. So we would love to 
transition someone out over several months, like let them interview or otherwise. So when, when something is either creating the safety for someone to come to us and know that they will never be walked to the door by starting that discussion or the reverse by saying, look, like we don't need you to leave tomorrow, but like this isn't working. And so we can keep trying to do this, but I think it'd be better if we helped you find a new job that would be, you know, a better fit. And, and this is easier if you have an organization that's focused on outcomes and goals and dashboards, right? If you're a pick on sales again, cause it's just easy. Sometimes if you're a salesperson and you've got a quarter million dollar quota and you've, you know, and, it, and, and it's two fifty a quarter and you're at 100, 100, 100. And every week it's a red light on the dashboard. Like it actually shouldn't be a surprise that someone's about to have a discussion with you that particularly if you see that all of the other salespeople are at hitting their quota and, and, and green light. So I think, again, the more that you get the outcomes right and the data right, and, and you're having this on an ongoing basis, the more these things don't come out of left field. But let's just stop pretending that people are going to work at companies forever because that's not the case. So like, how do we take all the emotion out of leaving and 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 have a positive alumni? You look at someone like McKinsey, like they've always been amazing at this. Like you, as soon as you want to leave McKinsey, you know, they will set you up and outplacement. And what does everyone do? They go to lead companies and hire McKinsey. It's mm-hmm. been like their feeder for, for, for decades. So a couple of things from my notes that I just want to see if, if this is accurate. You said it was almost a 90 day transition plan. Um, yeah. Was it always 90 days? Was it depending on the situation? It depends on the situation. Again, if you want to go back to, if you're going back to school in six months, you know, that could be different than I, we've found that 90 days is about the right gestational period. I think you need, mm-hmm. you also, you need the person, if you're pushing it, you need them not to feel like they have forever. Right. And, and if they're leading it at some point, they're going to be mentally ready to move on to their, their new job, but you eliminate a lot of the surprises and, Again, I, I actually, everyone who's kind of argued with me and I did a TEDx talk or whatever, when they have tried it, they are kind of surprised how much of a better outcome. All of the lawsuits and stealing and all the stuff that you hear with that, like they all come from distrust and surprises, right? I had a organization I worked with and they're like, look, we trust our people. We have the best culture ever. But as soon as they are going to leave, they walk them to the door like that hour. And I'm like, well, you are never going to have anyone tell you the truth. Like, because... What do they see? They see that as soon as you tell them to leave, you get walked to the door. So you're you're telling everyone you don't trust the people. So why are they going to trust? Like they didn't actually see that they were creating this incredibly vicious cycle where like, of course, no one's going to tell you that they're unhappy or interviewing or whatever. They're going to they're going to have their box packed before they tell you, give you the two weeks notice. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what you say. It's what you do. Right. Oh, we're, we really trust our people. And then you're out yeah. the door the moment that you're not wanting to be here. Someone said uh, to me believe- once, if you have all these people that are leaving your company that are doing extremely nefarious things to your organization, then either you are really hiring the wrong people or there's something you are doing to them in your company to make them that way. And I always thought that that was a really good perspective on it. Well, it goes back to Jocko's mirror we just talked about, problem identified, right? Yeah. Like, it's not them. It, it's you as a leader. I want to make sure I'm not making this up because I believe what I remember hearing is you would actually, even for certain team members, help them get their next job. Yeah. Um, was that uh, part of the, 
the I the someone swap. texted me yesterday about who's in one of these transitions and asked me for some ideas. Yeah, we'll give them a reference. I mean, this is again, we do this the right way and we will help you. I have made intros. We've I've opened my Rolodex. You know, we have someone doing that now who reached out to the CEO and myself and gave them a bunch of ideas. Uh, so again, how do we just change? Like this person's not a bad person. They're just, it's not working in the role. And I think mm-hmm. they want to do something different. So actually maybe this is a point they've done this a couple of times and it's not working in the role. So I think maybe this was an epiphany of them of like, maybe I should think about a different type of role. Like this isn't the right role for me. Mm-hmm. Are there any exceptions to this? Like an ethical breach where they're stealing and it's kind of like, no, yeah. this isn't a 90 day. This is an Altador sort of deal. Yeah. We've had only like twice in the last 10 years that we've had ethical things where it was instantaneous. But mm-hmm. I actually think people tend to be more respectful and be like, you know, they're, you're kind of watching them. Everyone's always worried about like what someone is going to do. I'm like, if they knew that they were leaving and they hated you, whatever, they've already done all of it. <laughs> they've already copied the sales database. They've already done that. Like, You think like actually when you're watching them and helping them and trying to get a better outcome, that should not be the point when they are in an, you're, 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 you're trying to address these things before we get to the angry stage on both sides. The whole point is you're shifting the timeline forward to say, before we get to the point of no return, let's have a very honest discussion about what our options are here. Yeah. It's rather than go look for jobs in secret. And then your performance blips because you're just doing job searches all day. Right. And then you just said in your last check-in that you love it here. And then they find out you've been interviewing, right? Yeah. Just come talk to us. And by the way, we'll, we'll support your transition. And yeah. And so what three years later, when the person calls for a reference, right? I mean, that's also not a great last memory or one week notice or telling everyone you love like, and people forget it's a small world and it's LinkedIn. So you might think like it all worked out well, but then when you lose that job and you have no references from your last two jobs because of how you left, it can be very problematic for you. Yeah, that's awesome. And so like where, where if I'm out there and, you know, some people look through the lens of line item expense when they're looking at, at business and they're thinking, well, Bob, you just paid a person that needed to go after two weeks and you just paid them for 90 days. Your argument to that would be, my argument is, would you rather pay severance for them not to work or would you rather have them like help maintain the client relationship? Because this is where 80% of the people are for us. Well, we hire a new person that they're here, switch it in, do the transition and reduce the risk of that client leaving. Because because account changes are one of the number, I mean, you've, like people hate, particularly last minute when their client engagement person switches on. For sure, yeah. for sure. And if you're going to pay them, you know, two to three weeks not to work. <laughs> like, wouldn't you rather pay them more time to work and help you have a proper transition? Okay. So that's an interesting take. You're basically, instead of saying, Hey, your transition out, here's a four week severance. You're basically saying, Hey, keep showing up during your severance. We'll be working behind the scenes to kind of set you up on your feet for what's next. So you're basically almost paying the severance as you help them transition out versus their yeah, house. And, 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 and you're getting utility and rather than them being totally checked out, even during their two week notice or otherwise, like you're, you know, I, you, you are getting some utility. It might not be a hundred percent, but again, in the grand mm-hmm. scheme, my job is to have enough. My job is in a perfect world. We figure out it's 90 days. And then Kristen you know, we hire Kristen a couple of weeks with your help. And then Kristen starts showing up on the call every week with you with the client. And then after six weeks of those calls, 
you know, with Kristen slowly taking over, you start to announce, you know, that you're leaving. That's very different than, hey, uh, Brad's gone and uh, Kristen's going to help you this week. And then we're going to figure out like that's just really bad client. Right. Yeah. Here's a random stranger we just plugged in. Right. Yeah. Who may not be staying because we're busy shuffling pieces on the deck. All right. Let's go to firing yourself as CEO. So you, you have this, this baby that you yep. uh, have a company that you, you grew up and we, we coach a lot at our company kind of four phases of scale in, in our space. We call it advisor in charge to business owner, to CEO, to board member, which what's interesting, you went from CEO to board member, which would yep. be our kind of final two phases that we coach on. So what do I, what death, was death is next? Yeah. So yeah. Then you just die. And it's yeah. over. <laughs> Um, Hey, you, you can stretch the board as long as you want, man. Okay. So, so what, um, what was the hardest part about that as you navigated that? This was a very intentional two year process in which I think we did a lot of planning. We thought it out. I think for me, the only hard part, and actually I would say that is for me, like, and this is something I've noticed is like, even though we planned all this time, as you got to the last stages of knowing that you're doing something different, it's hard again to what I was almost saying about the 90 days, it can be hard to like keep doing what you're doing, kind of knowing what's coming next. So I actually, and I learned that lesson when I sort of even, I, I pushed ahead kind of my stepping down a little more uh, this year by three months. Cause I kind of felt like I was already mentally there. And so I wanted to be physically um, there. Mm-hmm. The thing that I think would be the hardest in that sort of situation with a long-term CEO. And I, I, I think we did this really well as a team is I made some sort of cold Turkey things to, well, we actually did behind the scenes. A lot of what I just said, I had Matt, who was a long time number two, start leading the calls and doing these things. And actually, so when people say what's going to change, I'm like, actually, we already changed most of them. You didn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, di- you didn't see it, but we already changed it um, because he's been leading all these things. But then I, I, you know, as hard as it was for me, I, I stayed out of his way. I got out of meetings. I said, that's Matt's decision. I've always felt like when I was in YPO and EO and stuff, and then you'd be president and then the person would come back on the board and you were just the president. I, I felt like you should get off the board and give that person the total space and authority. So people aren't confused about who's in charge. So I, I think that would probably be the hardest thing for most people. I think we did it really well, where when we made the cutover, it was really clear. Like I didn't try to hold on to anything. Like all the employees were handed over. Like I didn't run the meetings. It wasn't my voice. Like, you know, I'm sure I chimed in a few places, but I really tried to give him the space that I knew he was going to to need. And and even when people protested, like I stopped coming to the second day of our offsite meetings because that wasn't about the strategy. That's about what everyone's going to do for the quarter and their plan with the teams. And I didn't have a team. And so I was like, look, I shouldn't be in that session. And so People don't like the change of that stuff, but having seen a lot of things that didn't work, I realized, I think you need a certain cold turkey. You don't want any ambiguity around who's in charge or which ideas it is or looking looking to mom and then looking to dad. Yeah. Was Matt your COO at the time that you yeah, he was? Yeah, he was president. Uh, he was kind of long time number two. Yeah. Okay. And where my head goes, just thinking through the the audience that's listening in here, we have this, it, it's like a demographic shift that's happening. And we talked, I think our last conversation about your financial advisor and yeah. I, I believe it's a lady, right? It was yeah. her transition. Yeah. yeah. 
what we have is a, a generational transition going on right now where there's a lot of 60, 65, 70 year old, typically white dudes, because that's who's in finance mostly. And I know that's changing demographically, but so 65 year old fathers that are handing off businesses oftentimes to sons or daughters. And I see this really painful, emotional, like it's so hard. It's like, I've done this for the last 40 years and it's what you just voiced. Like you sounds like you did pretty intentionally, pretty strategically. It's really, really hard. And I don't know if that's because it's a family dynamic because it's i I've done this my whole life an identity dynamic, but did you deal with any of that at all? Yeah, there, there is, look, there is a whole there is a Yale piece that shows this curve of sort of stepping out and exiting and the satisfaction. And it, it really plummets after six months. I, there is definitely a, a whole identity piece that comes along with it. That's separate from the organization, right? I think there's the organizational piece. And then I think there's the yourself piece. So it's, it's taken a lot of work with me and redefining things and, you know, uh, and, and working with coaches and stuff to really like, change my, like anyone who takes a new road, say you have to change your identity and your kind of source of validation. <laughs> and, and as much as I had heard it and planned for it, and actually a lot of people talk about losing their platform, but you know, I, I had a brand, I had my writing, mm-hmm. I had all that. Like, I always felt like that was a little lifeboat that I would be able to mm-hmm. jump into. But, but even when that it is, it is, I think it is a harder personal transition than, than, than people make it out to be not that it's not right. And that you wouldn't go through that, you know, anyway, but when you've done something for a long time and then you change that, there are going to be unintended consequences and known consequences. I think, I think I was really good at the known talk. I, we're all good at the known. I thought about what the known things would be. I, you know, I didn't think about the unknown things would be, you know, just little things mm-hmm. like, people like, Oh, what do you do now? Right. Well, that becomes like a self-worth question. Yeah. <laughs> some people say it jokingly. Some people don't realize they're saying it, but you find yourself getting, you know, you retire, you find yourself getting defensive with the answer. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes along with that. Well, well, fortunately you can still answer, Hey, I have one of the largest email newsletters yeah. in the world. So that's helpful to be able to fall. But back it's on funny, that like the way right? I did all the AP stuff and non AP stuff was like work a hundred hours a week to our earlier discussion, which just wasn't sustainable mm-hmm. anymore. And so all I'm doing now is like, you know, trying to work a regular work week between my obligations to the business and the thing outside. But it's funny how people are like, well, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's interesting. Well, on that note, that was what end of 2021, you stepped away. Yeah. I think you said, so yeah. you're, let's see, we're a year and a few months into this journey. What's next for Bob? Is this going to be another chapter, start up another business, do some speaking, write some books with where you yeah, all, all, all of the above. Uh, I am consciously, as a lot of people who kind of have a achiever orientation, trying to create some space because I found myself running into the next thing and trying to figure out the mm-hmm. next thing. And, and I feel like I earned that space. And, and I think sometimes to figure out the right thing to do, you need, you need that space. And I'm not good with the space. So I'm still very involved with the business. You know, we have, uh, you know, a partnership going on and it's be a few more years kind of seeing that, that through, even as my role changes within the business, but a, a little bit, it's a little bit of a portfolio approach now. Like, I don't know. Could I, would I be happy being a full-time author or writer? I don't know. Maybe there's, I know I don't want to speak three times a week and travel, but I love speaking one to two times a month. So I, I am taking a little bit of a portfolio approach and having, I really my kids are all in that sort of about to be college space. So the family and the flexibility thing is really important to me. And like 
want to go on college tours, you want to do something, let's do that. And we'll see what's next. I'm, 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 I'm trying to intentionally not put pressure on myself to, to figure that out. Cause I think a lot of us get to one top of a summit and then we just like rush to climb the next thing. And I don't, I don't know yeah. that it serves us very well. That's awesome. I did it. Not the extended version that she did, but I took a, a couple months and it was really healthy for me, but I also learned something about myself. I can identify with the achiever mindset. I realized like if I didn't apply my energy to something that I felt was bettering humanity in some way that I was actually like, not, I was turning into what wouldn't be the best version of myself, crankier at home, kind of, you know, like what, what's my purpose. And, uh, so I think a lot, like you said, that Yale study, it's like six months and then yeah. falls off the cliff. And, and then like, it I actually think, rebounds back pretty hard. Yeah. Oh, is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. So six months well, was like the trough. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's good. I should have just held out for a few more months then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of friends who've sold their businesses or quit a job or had some payout or otherwise. And I, I've genuinely, and they're kind of coming off a big burnout period. And if I talk to them, it's like zero to three months, they're loving life. Three to six, you start to get a little angst. At six plus, you start to hear some real angst. That, and it's almost very consistent. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a small percentage of the world, I think, you know, depending on the study you look at, like 1% are entrepreneurs in the human population. And so it's almost like if you're in that percentage, you are kind of designed at some level like to do things or to build things. And so I, I could see how just chilling would be kind of a tough scenario for someone wired that way. Yeah. Well, so as, as we wrap here today, I want to get your take. I'm really going to enjoy it because a lot of what we talked about, you know, whether it's the Marissa Meyer, the Elon Musk mentality of just grind it out however many hours a week. One of the things that we're really trying to change here at Triad in our industry, in the finance space, is just this kind of red line behavior of more, 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 more production that does. I've, I've seen it over and over lead to burnout. I've seen it lead to just letting your physical self go, uh, just all kinds of just negative things when it's just out of whack, out of balance. And so I would be curious to hear, Bob, your take on what is do business, do life. What would that mean to you if you were both to have? a very healthy business side of your yeah. life and also like living the life that you actually want to live. Yeah. I mean, you and I share a similar philosophy on this. I've been talking for years about like you know, wrote one of my most popular articles I ever wrote was you don't want work-life balance. You want integration, right? It's puzzle. Piece. Mm-hmm. How do these pieces all fit together so that you can have meaningful work, meaningful family, meaningful personal things. And they're not ever going to be in balance. You're going to have weeks that are more family and weeks that are more like how, but how over time do those things fit together and you create a puzzle that works for you where you don't feel like everything is always a compromise or a sacrifice or that you're missing out. I think the stress that we put ourselves is that we look at too tight of a timeline. Like I have had a, a, two weeks ago, I had a over family week. You know, this week I have had an over work week. Like I'm, I'm not stressed that the, you know, they, the two of those worked hand in hand in terms of the schedule mm-hmm. that I've designed. So I, I think looking at a month's lens or multi-month lens and saying like, I've had, I've, I've, I've had really quality experiences all across the spectrum of the different things in my life that I want to do on that. note, And then, one, and then comes, one has not been the detriment of the other. Yeah. Do you, you kind of shared the, the example of your work week and putting the big rocks in the things that mattered most first. Do you look at, if you zoom out to a year 
and kind of that family dynamic, work dynamic? Do you kind of do that same thing on a on a zoomed out annual basis as well with trips, things like that? Yeah, we're we're usually vacationing in my way like a year out, six months a year. We're thinking about that. Like that's the they're not always ready, but yeah, that has a long, mm-hmm. long orientation. So basically you've kind of retro, it's kind of the cubby seven habits start with the end in mind. You've already kind of guaranteed those big blocks of family time are yeah. going to happen no matter what before work kind of overtakes them and overpowers them. Exactly. I know if I plan these sort of times off, then I won't be working then. Right. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Did you use the trick of text my wife if you need something? Have you tried that one yet? I haven't used that yet, but, but (laughs) I showed that slide the first time I presented this material and people were laughing like hysterically at that, at that email. It's a great email. Like they get the point when you read it. Also the interrupt my vacation at, that was the other. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking, I was like, if somebody actually did text Sarah, she'd be like, what is she? I think she'd like, well, it just creates such a high threshold of like, you're not going to do it unless it's an emergency. Right. That was the, that was the point. Yeah, it's a really good hurdle to put yeah. in the way of somebody interrupting your vacation. That's for sure. Unless they actually use it, then it probably gets you in trouble. So exactly. Well, cool, man. I always always enjoy our conversations. So thanks so much, Bob, for coming on the show. And congrats on the new book, Elevate Your Team. I just know the type of value you bring, so I'm sure it's going to be a bestseller on just about every list it can be. So congrats on the new launch. And we're going to buy a box and give them away to listeners. So thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Till next time. Okay. On to this week's featured review. This week's featured review comes to us from user Connor Rush 20 uh, via Apple iTunes podcasts. He says, DBDL Industry Insider, five stars. I am working and studying for my life and health insurance license under a financial advisor while also trying to learn as much as I can to improve my own knowledge about finance. This podcast gives you an insider look and wisdom from professionals who have been in the industry for years and have dealt with the challenges and adversities with trying to better themselves and others who don't necessarily see eye to eye, but with great communication can come to an understanding and respect for one another. This podcast is definitely worth the listen and can teach you much more about business and life than you might think you know. These guys are changing the industry one advisor at a time, and I can't wait to see it unfold even more than they already have. Connor Rush. Connor, what's up? I believe this is the Connor from Kansas City. So thanks for the kind words. And man, I love how you're just approaching this as a student. I love how um, pretty much fresh out of college, you're diving in and seeing this as a career versus a job. That's the one piece of advice I would give a lot of you, you younger uh, generation in finance. And that's not just financial advisors that can be members on the team and just approach this thing like a career versus a job where you clock in and clock out. And that's the one thing that I would say that in finance that I've learned is there's just so much growth, so much opportunity. If you take this seriously and invest in your own learning, invest in your future, that pays so many dividends in this space. And there's just unlimited upside, whether you're an advisor, whether you're a team member, there's just, just about every job in business exists in finance marketing, sales, operations, branding, the list just goes on and on. So uh, it's such a great place to be in, Connor. I'm so excited for you, man. And as you grow and mature and learn more about what it is that, you know, is in that 
kind of what you're passionate about and what you're also proficient at. Uh, that's the crossover, not just being excited about it, but also having a skill set and developing a skill set. Um, really, the sky's the limit. So thanks for listening, Connor. Thanks for the review. I think we got you some uh, swag, some DBDL swag. And for those listening, if, if you aren't a DBDL insider yet, that's uh, 785-800-3235 or 785-800-DBDL. Just text DBDL to that insider hotline and you will be the first to know when new episodes drop and we've got all kinds of special opportunities. We just did a private coaching session with Chris Smith just last week for DBDL insiders only. So we'll keep the fun stuff coming for the insiders. Once again, Connor, thanks again. And thanks for listening. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. As we wrap, for access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from all of our show's guests, don't forget to visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners and other financial advisors out there that can benefit from the show. Trust me, it really does help. So thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations.